Welcome back to episode two of HPR Talks, The First 100, where we discuss the recent developments in the Biden administration and its relation to U.S. politics at large. Last time, we covered the initial month of Biden's first 100 days and shed light on what his administration inherited, his many executive orders, the impeachment of former President Trump, and some possible roadblocks that Biden will face during his term. Today, we're going to start by having a conversation about the winter weather crisis in Texas and what the Biden administration has been doing to mitigate the issues in the region. Next, we're going to transition to foreign policy, focusing on the administration's efforts to stand alongside European countries to restore the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. After that, we plan to dive back into domestic issues, specifically the process of the Biden administration's COVID relief package, bipartisanship feasibility, and round off with what precisely the timeline and goals of the proposal are. Now, this past week featured some brutal winter storms in an unlikely part of the United States, Texas. The weather, which also affected Oklahoma, Mississippi, Missouri, and other neighboring states, has been described as a testament to the threat posed by the extreme temperatures characteristic of climate change. More than that, such conditions have shed light on how an aging infrastructure is not fit to withstand extreme weather fluctuations. As of February 18th, the Biden administration has authorized the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, to send 60 generators and other supplies to Texas in an effort to mitigate the effects of mass power outages occurring across the state. President Biden has also approved disaster declaration in states such as Oklahoma and Louisiana as unexpected winter weather continues to pose serious implications on residents. White House Press Secretary Jan Psaki said that although Biden's upcoming trips have been canceled due to the weather, aid to Texas is, quote, certainly a focus. It definitely seems as though the Biden administration had to respond to their fair share of crises during the first few weeks in office. COVID has been a national public health crisis that they had inherited, but the situation in Texas and other countries in the region is unique to recent weeks. Press Secretary Saki said that Biden has told his team to, quote, make rapid decisions and be responsive to the needs of states as they come up. And I think that quote embodies an element of trust and serious immediacy present in the Biden administration's mitigation efforts. There also seems to be an acknowledgement that this is not just a one-time issue, that there are more foundational concerns that the administration will have to tackle once the crisis at hand passes. Homeland Security Advisor Liz Sherwood Randall recently said that the Biden administration would work to, quote, strengthen and harden state infrastructure for future situations of severe weather and crisis. And it seems these efforts have been met with commendation from a lot of Democrats. O'Rourke described the Biden administration as having, quote, stepped up and delivered much needed aid to Texas. Now, after President Trump's efforts to depart from Obama-era nuclear policies and push for United Nations sanctions on Iran, Biden on Thursday offered to join European nations in restoring nuclear diplomacy with the country. Despite this move, though, Biden has not yet lifted some of the sanctions imposed on Iran by Trump. According to a February 20th article from the New York Times, Biden will lift sanctions only if Iran returns to the level of nuclear production that they had in place up until 2019. In order for the U.S. to remove its many economic sanctions on Iran, the State Department insists that Iran return to full compliance with the deal they agreed to during the Obama administration. This begs the question, what exactly did the Iran nuclear deal seek to accomplish? 
Well, I think that one important point of context is that this deal was sort of a point of diplomatic pride for the Obama administration. The full title was the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and it essentially incentivized Iran to seize the development of nuclear weapons, and in turn, the United States would provide economic sanction relief. And the deal fell through during the Trump administration? Correct. In 2018, President Trump withdrew the United States and his administration really heightened the pressure by pushing what they called a, quote, maximum pressure campaign against Iran. And how was that received? Extremely poorly. There were talks for a while that such a move could even begin another war in the Middle East. And Trump's 2020 drone strike, which resulted in the death of Soleimani, who was a highly ranked Iranian general, was really the last straw. So it seems as though Iran is really calling for a total reversal back to the Obama administration's stance on the deal before they move forward with the United States. You're correct. And it seems as though the Biden administration is also holding fast and saying that Iran will have to comply with the guidelines of the deal in order to enjoy the benefits of East sanctions. I think it's fair to say that while the intention to normalize relations is certainly there, it's going to be difficult to say how quickly this is going to happen and whether there are going to be potential obstacles in the near future to de-escalate tensions and reinstate the sort of Obama-era version of the Iran nuclear deal in this current Biden administration. More to come next week on that. Transitioning back to domestic policy, the Biden administration is holding fast to their stimulus plan, which calls for a $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. The turnaround seems to be fairly quick, with The Hill reporting that it may be as soon as next week that we see the full package either passing or failing in the House. Representative John Yarmuth from Kentucky described America to be in, quote, a race against time and said that, quote, aggressive, bold action is needed before our nation is permanently scarred by the human and economic costs of inaction. So what exactly does the relief package cover? Great question. First of all, the bill itself is 591 pages, and it covers a wide range of financial packages that would help mitigate the effects of COVID-19. For instances, there's $195.3 billion allocated to the states, $130.2 billion allocated to local governments. They also call for an investment of $14 billion to spur on vaccine distribution efforts, as well as to continue much needed scientific research on the coronavirus. There's certainly a lot of elements in the package that are controversial, especially for a lot of Republicans who are arguing that $1.9 trillion is beyond the capacity of the federal government. And it's certainly going to be an uphill hike for Democrats to push the bill in the Senate. Already folks are anticipating various amendments, some more fundamental than others, in order to get close to the passing threshold. So if there's one portion of the bill that's the most controversial, what would that be? That's certainly an important question, and although there are a lot of elements that are triggering outcry, especially from across the aisle, lots of people are pointing towards the call to elevate minimum wage to $15 per hour. The Hill said it outright. They believe that to be the most controversial portion of the document. And to clarify, the drafters are calling for an increase of the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025 specifically. And for the sake of context, what's the federal minimum wage right now? At the federal level, the minimum wage is $7.25. So if actualized, a new minimum wage in 2025 would be more than double than what we have now in 2021. This is definitely no small uptick. 
It's a demand that will certainly be met with opposition from a lot of Republican representatives. It's also a reminder that the package isn't necessarily bipartisan. There are certainly elements to it that folks from both sides of the aisle agree are immediate, are important, but there are certainly policies that are less unfavorable to certain groups of politicians who have a real sway in the voting process. You're definitely right. And I think that the Biden administration is very much aware of that too. Even three days ago, the Washington Post reported that President Biden said he was potentially open to negotiation in regards to the $15 minimum wage proposal. I think one thing to consider is the pros and cons of such a policy, and it's important to ask who this would be benefiting and on the road to actualization, who would be potentially hurting. The Washington Post recently summarized a report by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, and the findings said that an increased minimum wage of $15 by 2025 would cut potentially 1.4 million jobs. They also said that the deficit would be heightened to $54 billion in the next 10 years. On the positive side, they noted that it would lift close to a million people, 900,000 to be exact, out of poverty, and it would also help to raise the incomes of approximately 17 million people. So there's definitely nuance in the economic and social consequences of passing and then working to implement such a policy. Aside from a coronavirus relief package, one of Biden's key legislative goals during his first 100 days has been to overhaul Trump-era immigration policies and practices. This past Thursday, Democrats in Washington unveiled President Biden's new proposed immigration bill, the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021. The main feature of this bill is a new and expedited eight-year path to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented immigrants already in the United States. According to the White House, this will allow families to remain together, will signal an American openness to diversity on the federal level, protect workers' rights, and help to grow the economy. In addition to extending opportunities for citizenship to undocumented immigrants here in the states, the bill also seeks to enhance border control as well as crack down on criminal organizations that are responsible for the proliferation of narcotics in the U.S. Perhaps the most well-designed feature of the bill is its attempt to address the root causes of migration, as it will provide funding to assist to reduce poverty, corruption, and violence in Central American states, as well as enhance U.S. immigration courts to be more just and lenient. Though this is likely a deal that the vast majority of Democrats will be able to get behind, there have been some immigration advocates in favor of introducing smaller individual bills aimed at addressing immigration rather than the large sweeping bill backed by Biden. This is a possibility that Speaker Nancy Pelosi, though praising Biden's bill, also acknowledges. And that may be sound advice, as Congress has not passed a sweeping, comprehensive immigration reform bill in decades. What's more, Republicans themselves also prefer smaller bills to comprehensive ones, especially when those bills prioritize border security. As Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina told NBC News, quote, you just can't legalize one group without addressing the underlying broken immigration system you just incentivize more. So a smaller deal may be possible. Fortunately though, this immigration bill does seek to address this underlying broken immigration system that Graham refers to. It just does so in a manner that hasn't been done before. 
rather than use the methods of excessively increased border security that Trump prized during his administration. This bill instead seeks to address immigration using policies to help assuage the financial, political, and social conditions in Central America that cause immigrants to depart for the U.S. in the first place. It also is a follow-up on Biden's many campaign promises on immigration. Despite its many merits, though, the likelihood of the bill passing in its original form is tenuous at best. As we mentioned earlier, Biden already has a sweeping coronavirus relief package that will face much opposition in Congress. It is possible that this bill will be decreased in size or left to the wayside entirely as narrower and more politically feasible bills are pursued instead. But it still will certainly be interesting to see how the Biden administration and Democrats on Capitol Hill will be able to handle the two major bills at once. In other news, there has been a recent rise in anti-Asian American sentiment in the U.S. There have been at least 3,000 reported hate crimes against Asian Americans since last February. And according to the NYPD, in New York alone, there has been an 867% increase. It is likely that this increase is at least partially due to hateful rhetoric, much of which was spouted by Trump himself, that essentially pinned the blame on Asians and Asian Americans for the COVID-19 pandemic. The Biden administration has previously denounced the heightened racism and xenophobia against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the country through an executive order published on January 26 of 2021 that calls for collaboration between the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force to, quote, consider issuing guidance describing best practices for advancing cultural competency, language access, and sensitivity toward Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the context of the federal government's COVID-19 response. So in it, they actually acknowledged that the federal government was complicit in the problem. It reads, quote, the federal government must recognize that it has played a role in furthering these xenophobic sentiments through the actions of political leaders, including references to the COVID-19 pandemic by the geographic location of its origin. They additionally state that these statements, quote, stoked unfounded fears and perpetuated stigma about Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi also recently spoke out against the uptake of hate crimes targeting Asian Americans, and she was strongly backed by other House Democrats in that call. Some lawmakers are proposing the drafting of legislation that will make reporting hate crimes more accessible and feasible and ensure that the Justice Department is heeding the crisis that the Asian American community is currently facing. Vice President Kamala Harris has also expressed concerns with COVID-19's impact on women in the economy. She has cited the Labor Department's statistic that 2.5 million women have left the workforce compared to only 1.7 million male counterparts. Vice President Harris has stated her firm belief that, quote, our economy cannot fully recover unless women can participate fully. Accordingly, the Biden administration has included in its coronavirus relief package many elements aimed at alleviating the economic struggle experienced by women especially women without college education and women of color. And so that's where we are now. The Biden administration is dealing with the winter weather crisis brought about by climate change, attempting to restore a nuclear deal from the long gone Obama era, trying to stick to campaign promises regarding immigration, 
and, of course, handling the most serious pandemic the nation has seen in over a century. And as of now, overall, it looks like things are starting to come together. But will that still be the case once much of his legislation will have to stand the test of a divided, polarized Congress? We're just as eager as you are to find out. And with that, I'm Emmy. And I'm Fawaz. And this has been the HPR Talks, The First 100.